Hey guys, long time no see. Hope everyone has had a fabulous new year um, so far. And we are finally at the harvest, the point in our heavy revy study of what I believe is the, uh, the catching away. I believe I'm going to be able to prove it. I believe I'm going to be able to prove the timing. Not say I'm going to give a year or anything like that because the word's clear that uh, we're not going to know that. But just the timing as far as end time events. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around the timing of the second coming and the timing of the rapture. The most dominant idea that is taught in Christendom, I guess you would say, is that... Um, there is a secret in the middle of the night catching away or rapture of the saints. And we hang out in heaven for a while. And then the tribulation does its thing. And then we return with the Lord at the very end uh, to defeat his enemies and set up rule in his kingdom. There's some that put it at the uh, mid point of the tribulation. So they believe that <clears throat> the enemy or the Antichrist kingdom and ruler, uh, you know, enter into a treaty with Israel. And then at the midpoint, they break the tre treaty. And it's at that point that we are uh, raptured out. And then the great tribulation occurs. And then again, we return with the Lord. Um, I do not believe that scripture supports any of those uh, scenarios. And in the Daniel Company, I talk a lot about, especially when you get into the, the um, second half of Daniel's book, I talk a lot about timing. I talk, uh, talk about what is restraining and who is restraining that Paul referred to. Uh, we also have discussed how Paul said that the revealing of the Son of Man and or that the, the catching away of the saints will not occur until two things have happened. One is the great falling away, and then the one is the revealing of the Son of Man. So that puts us at least at midpoint. But then you have um, the word coming, which we have discussed as well, which is a Greek word parousia, and it refers to a king that is returning to stay. And it's always and only used to refer to the second coming. And also, if you look at the description of the catching away, the rapture, it's not a secret event. It's actually um, very vocal with a trumpet sound and a shout and all kinds of things going on. And then, you know, people say, well, we're not appointed to wrath. Well, the tribulation is not the wrath of God. The tribulation is the wrath of the Antichrist. And there's numerous uh, scriptures that support him persecuting Christians. Uh, you can't say that Israel is elect or that Israel are saints because in order to be a saint, you must be born again. And so it, it, there's not any room for a person to be saved and going to heaven just because they're Jewish. You have to be born again. That's the whole nature. That's the whole crux of the story of redemption is that we had fallen natures. The law pointed out to the nation of Israel that they could not keep it. 
because of the fallen nature, it served as a tutor, according to Paul in the book of Galatians. And then Jesus, God, became man, dwelt as man on the earth, was crucified in in place of us receiving the punishment for sins, was resurrected on the third day, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And then we, through the work of regeneration, have the nature of Christ. So where we were once dead to God, we're now alive to him. And uh, so, you know, there's lots of scriptures that support the idea of um, a uh, post-tribulation rapture before the bowls of wrath, which we will um, continue our study on, uh, you know, eventually. But remember, here in Revelation chapter 14, we're actually in the behind the scenes. So I'll reiterate because it's been a little bit, because the last uh, teaching we discussed the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. Um, but you have where there are things happening in heaven, and then there's a behind the scenes that John shares with us. And then you have, you know, like for example, you got the seals are broken, then behind the scenes, the trumpets are sounded, then you've got the woes and the behind the scenes of that. And we're actually at the last trumpet in this case, which is interesting because the Bible says that we are caught up to heaven at the last trumpet. So what we're about to study is the last trump events or the behind the scenes. And then we'll get into the bowls of wrath. And the bowls of wrath are where the wrath happens. That's, that's that, I think it's 30 to 70 day or 40 to 70 day period between his first coming and the end of the age where he just pours out his wrath. The age of grace is over, and we'll get into that as we continue on. So let's start with uh, Revelation 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 in the New Living Translation. It says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves, or the rolling of loud thunder, it was like the sound of many harps, harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, and they had kept, them, kept themselves pure as virgins following the Lamb wherever he goes. They had, uh, they have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies, and they are without uh, blame. Um, so the hundred forty-four thousand. I'm just going to tell you straight up, it's still a mystery to me. I would love for more um, understanding, and I'm seeking more understanding on that because here it looks like a past tense situation. It looks like they're actually in heaven. Uh, you know, we've been called to Zion, according to Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 12, or to that uh, new Jerusalem, that heavenly Jerusalem. And so it sounds like these um, 144,000 uh, have been redeemed from the earth, meaning that they are now in heaven. Um, but I don't know if that is also symbolic, you know, because like Ephesians says that we are seated in spiritual places with him. Well, obviously we live on the earth. So there's a spiritual reality and there's a positional reality 
that we're experiencing. You have John chapter three, where Jesus said that, you know, basically I'm the one that was up there. I'm down here. And also I am there. And so even though he was physically here, spiritually and positionally, he was still uh, in heaven. So, you know, it's, you cannot have uh, a dogmatic view on things that we still don't understand. You know, like you've got Daniel who saw some things he couldn't share. I believe John saw some of the things that he couldn't share, but there were some things that John saw that he couldn't share that are actually sealed up until we're at the end of the age. So the 144,000 are interesting. I'm just going to do my best to tell you what I do know according to the Greek. Uh, so we know that they're both marked by Jesus and the Father's name on their foreheads, which is interesting because we know the Antichrist will put the mark on the forehead or the hand. And we talked about what that is in the last teaching, which, by the way, you can listen to the entire series, including the Daniel Company at the Destination Church podcast. They're, they've been redeemed from the earth. Now, the word from is very interesting, and there's an interesting study of looking at which two words are used, especially in relation to the catching away into the end times. So the one that's used here is APO, A-P-O, and it's the idea of by, near, or with. And then the other word used for from, or also the phrase out of, is ek, and it means someone or something that was in and then removed out of. Apo or apo is different and that it never entered in, if that makes sense. So um, it would be like, here I have this pen, right? And I've got this container. And so the pen is redeemed from the earth, but it never enters into the earth, if that makes sense. So ek is where something is inside and then it's removed out of. In fact, that's actually um, the uh, definition of us being taken out of the earth during tribulation when we're raptured. So <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. So you're actually in tribulation and taken out of it. So anyway, so these are apo. And basically it means that they were never part of the world system. Uh, we see this description that they kept themselves pure. Uh, so they never entered into that that world uh, system. They were redeemed free from the earth, and they had not defiled themselves with women. And this seems to be very important. Uh, you know, we see that they're pure, but the idea, the woman idea, could be quote the daughters of the harlot of Babylon with its false religious system. So, in other words, these are people that kept themselves free from Babylon's false religious system. Now, what exactly is that referring to? In Revelation 17, 3 through 5, it says, the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns. Now, remember, I taught in depth what that is, in depth. By the time you listen to the last uh, lesson on this, you should have no um, doubt what the uh, seven heads are, the ten horns. And then it says, And blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing, clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, 
mother of all harlots and obscenities in the world. Um, so, uh, What's interesting on this is Babylon and Babel goes all the way back. I did a, used to do conferences. I went in depth on Babel and Nimrod and Babylon and the city. You know, there's a war against Babylon and Jerusalem. There's like this, this two cities situation that's going on. But Babylon is like the epitome of all idolatry. It's the mother of all idolatry. And it was warring against God's will and his, his claim, which is true, of being the one true God. And so you've got where these people were rebellious and they were fighting against God. And so he can confuse the languages. Well, the tower that they were building in Babel, which later became Babylon, which was in Mesopotamia. The Chaldeans is an ancient name for the Babylonians as well. Uh, later, Nebuchadnezzar finished that ziggurat. And it was designed to be a portal into the demonic powers of which they thought were their gods, right? And so it's bypassing having to worship God. And so you had this whole economic and religious system that was built around this idea. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar who has a dream of the, um, the statue with the head of gold, which represented Babylon. So there's a lot that goes into uh, this idea of the harlot, and um, and she is the mother of all prostitutes, all idolatry and obscenities. And we also see not only the the um, the economic situation that's tied to idolatry, but we also see the sexual immorality situation that's tied to the idolatry. I mean, guys, it is so plain. Just look at the names that are being released um, with uh, the Jeffrey Epstein deal. You know, so. The, I mean, I hate to say, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, you got with Babylon, you've got sex, uh, economics, and idolatry, right? So they they are like um, siblings. They go together. Now, the uh, phrase where it says purchased from among the people of the earth is the same Greek words used for redeemed from the earth. They were redeemed as a special offering, which is first fruits in the Greek. Now, first fruits in the Old Testament, quote, is used to refer to a little portion of the agricultural harvest. Two Hebrew words are rendered, when, rendered, <laughs> the words are rendered, uh, first fruits. The first is spelled B-I-K-K-U-R-I-M, which specifically refers to the first ripe grain and fruit, which was harvested and offered to the Lord according to sacerdotal prescriptions. This term always appears in the masculine plural, and it may refer generally to the first produce of the soil. So that's from the Anchor Yell Bible Dictionary. The second word is resit, R-E-S-I-T, which is usually translated first or beginning of a series. In a special sense, it can mean choicest. The substantive based on this idea is translate first fruits with specific reference to uh, processed produce rather than produce in the raw state. Okay, so what it's saying is like, you know, you, you gather your harvest and what they were told to do according to the law was to give 10% to the Lord. So harvest, animals, etc. But there was a certain uh, sacrifice or offering that was the first fruits or the specific very first 
harvesting uh, of a harvest, right? And it was the choicest. You gave God the best, okay? And so if we take those terms and we apply it to the 144,000, we see that the 144,000 are the choicest. We also have Christ and his first fruits um, that are mentioned several times, especially um, those that uh, come with him. When he returns, we also have uh, the graves that were opened and went with him uh, to heaven out of paradise. Uh, so there's a lot of places where uh, this idea of first fruits is used. Excuse me. And so here with the 144,000, we see that they, um, well, in Israel as a nation, was also uh, first fruits of Yahweh's harvest. So sometimes the two terms are used together, the first of the first fruits. So because Yahweh is sovereign and because of his possession of all things, the first issue of man, beast, and soil were considered holy to him. Provision was made for the redemption of the firstborn of people and animals. And so the offerings of first fruits provide the redemption of the harvest. Okay, so I don't understand it completely, but it seems like the first fruits made the rest of the harvest holy for the people of God, okay, and blessed, right? So the post-exilic, so those that came back uh, from Babylon after being, you know, um, I think it was 70 years in exile, acknowledged that the priests had to, quote, bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks as is, as is written in the law. So this is in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 36 through 37. These offerings were given to the Lord as a thanksgiving offering and for the support of the priesthood, for the priests received the entirety of the first fruits except for the cereal offering. So that's in Leviticus uh, 14, and this is the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary still. Okay, so the Greek word used here is aparche, A-P-A-R-C-H-E, and it's exclusively figurative, okay? But it's, quote, just as literal first fruits are a harbinger and sample of the full harvest, meaning that the 144,000 being first fruits is tied to the harvest that it's about, that's about to occur, Okay, so we've got this 144,000 and they're a harbinger. They're a sample of what's about to happen. Okay, so the definition of harbinger is very interesting. It's a person who goes ahead and makes known the approach of another or heralds, right? Anything that foreshadows, sorry, if you hear a chip bag, I don't know if you can hear a chip bag, but if you do, that's my father-in-law eating. <laughs> he always likes to come out. Uh, and do things like that when I'm doing live uh, situations. Uh, now, also, it's anything that foreshadows a future event, an omen, an omen or a sign, like a frost is a harbinger of winter. And then a person sit, sent in advance of troops, a royal train, etc., to provide or secure lodgings and other accommodations. Okay, so this situation here, redeemed from the earth, is a first fruits. Now, if, if the language is symbolic, that they are uh, uh, standing with the lamb on Mount Zion, if that is symbolic and they're actually still in the earth, but they've kept themselves pure from the uh, world system and they've been redeemed, because, you know, we talked about the earth a lot 
uh, in the last uh, teaching as well and what that meant. Uh, it's not just the, the earth as a planet. Um, this 144,000 is actually symbolic of a harvest that is coming to Israel. I do not believe these are Gentiles. And I'll get into that in a second. So it might be like a taste to come of the revival, the what's going to happen in the nation. Uh, it could also, and I believe this is applicable, be a taste of the two harvests. There's one that's coming uh, of the uh, righteous, and then there's going to be uh, a grapes of wrath harvesting. Okay. Now the number 144,000 is symbolic of completeness and perfection as it as it is derived from the number 12, which is used to symbolize these qualities throughout the Bible. It is believed to refer to a group of Jews who are sealed and protected from the wrath of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. This group will evangelize the world during this period, leading to the salvation of millions. The 144,000 will be people who have been faithful to God and are spiritually pure. The number is also believed to represent completeness and perfection as it's derived from the number 12, which is used to symbolize those qualities throughout the Bible. And it is possible that the 144,000 are both in heaven and on earth as evidenced in the scene in Revelation 14, which is where we're at. So this is uh, from a Neva search, but Neva is no longer um, a viable search engine. They shut down. Okay, so these are just some of the options. Again, I don't think we're going to solve the mystery of the 144,000 tonight, but I did want to point out that they are a harbinger. That's going to be very important for our next section. So they've kept themselves pure. Um, we also have a listing of the tribes that we studied previously when the 144,000 are mentioned. Remember that two are conspicuously absent, and that's Ephraim and Dan. Both of those tribes were disqualified due to gross idolatry. So I believe that these 144,000 are Jews who are his first fruits, meaning they're born again, they're pure from idolatry, they preach the gospel, probably with a focus on the nation of Israel. Um, I don't believe they're Gentile, as I stated, uh, but I'm open to, you know, other arguments, of course. But we see a ramping up of things, right? Okay, now let's get to what I have been wanting to get to for weeks. Okay, and we may go, a, I wouldn't say long, but longer than I normally do. Normally I like to say between 25 minutes or so, but I want to get to the two harvests tonight. Uh, so I saw another angel flying through the sky, verse 6, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, fear God, he shouted, uh, give glory to him for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. So basically we have an angel. So think of an airplane with a sign behind it. You know how they fly with the, the sign, you know, with the message on it. This is what's happening. An angel is literally flying through the sky, preaching the good news, uh, and telling people, you better fear God because he's about to judge, right? You know, you've got people that say, well, if God would just show us, you know, you know, if, if he would just show up or if he would give us a sign or whatever, uh, we, we'd believe. Well, here you have a literal angel flying through the sky that everybody is seeing and people are still going to not believe. Okay. Uh, now, they're delivering the good news to all who belong to the world. I don't know if you notice that. They belong to the world which is in direct contrast to the 144,000 that have been redeemed from the earth. The word world and earth are the same Greek word. 
And this is all harvest language, right? So he's about to harvest. He's about to judge. Um, now, in, and I, I just want to say this. Belief is a heart issue. And unbelief is a, a heart issue. Both of them. External events are not going to cause a person to believe. It's an, in, it's an internal state. And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that um, we believe first in our heart and then we confess it, right? Now, miracles, the supernatural, can aid in confirming that what we're preaching is truth. That's in Mark 16. But a person can still see tons of miracles and not believe God. Evidence of that are the Pharisees, right? Now, um, in verse 8, we got another angel. So you got the one angel that's saying, hey, preach the good news. You better straighten up. He's about to judge. Now we have this second angel that's following behind him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen because she has made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Okay. Uh, now, God never does something unless he decrees it first. And so there's a decree that Babylon is falling. We actually see that in uh, chapter 17. No, I'm sorry, 18. So it's not yet fallen, but the angel is decreeing it, right? Okay, so we've got this other angel, and he says passionate Im immorality. The word passionate is, quote, an intense, passionate desire of an overwhelming and possibly destructive character. Intense desire and overwhelming passion. This word is thumos, and it means, quote, to move impetuously, particularly as an error wind, a violent motion or passion of the mind, like anger, wrath, indignation. In the Old Testament, the prophets presented Jehovah as giving to the nations in his wrath an intoxicating cup so that they reeled and staggered to destruction. Hence, also in the New Testament, the wine of the wrath of God. Now, the word immorality is to engage in sexual immorality of any kind, often with the implication of prostitution, to engage in illicit sex, commit fornication, sexual morality, fornication, and prostitution. So we have this passionate immorality. So it's an out-of-control immorality. But I don't want it to escape you that also part of the passion is not just the sexual sin, which we're going to see more and more Christians fall to that, by the way, but it's uh, the anger. So there's going to be an increased rage and anger against God and his people. And that is actually going to evoke the wrath of God on those evildoers. So the immorality is an idolatrous system that's tied to world economics like we discussed. It's not only an intense desire for money and power and security, but also a passion that rebuild its intense wrath and anger if one did not submit to its dominion and influence. And the wine that the world drank from the harlot Babylon is an illusion because drinking that wine means one will actually be drinking the wine of the wrath of God, which we'll get into in a second. Okay, now we have a third angel. Wait, so see what I mean? Like God is doing whatever he can to get people to understand what's about to happen. And he's giving people every occasion possible to repent. All right. So we now have a third angel. So you got the first angel preaching the good news. You got the second angel saying Babylon is fine, fallen. And then you've got the third angel 
In verse 9, anyone who worships a beast in his statue or who accepts his mark on the far forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintain their faith in Jesus. Okay, so now we've got don't take the mark, right? So this angel is flying through the sky, following the other two, saying don't take the mark. If you do, your future is a lake of fire forever. There's no way to get out of it. There's no way to repent. If you take the mark of the Antichrist system, that's it. You're going to be in hell when you die and then the lake of fire when death and Hades is thrown into that. Uh, well, I wonder if they'll be directly thrown in. We'll get to that eventually because that may be the case here. So there's this sober warning um, that God's people are to endure persecution patiently, obey his commands, maintain faith in Jesus, implying that we are not yet raptured out. Okay, so we're at the seventh trumpet. And he's saying, maintain patience. Don't give up. Don't stumble at this point. Uh, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. So basically, we're to a point in the persecution of the saints is at such an intense level that those who die, it's actually a blessing, okay? Um, because it's, it's, it's not fun. All right, here we go. Verse 14 through 16, Then I saw a white cloud, Note the white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. Okay, so two things. He had a gold crown. Oh, oh that's funny. If y'all see the balloons, I don't know what's going on with Apple, but when you do this, for some reason, balloons come up. Um, if you do this, confetti. Let's see if I can, yeah. So, <laughs> here we are, studying in the book of Revelation, right? And balloons and confetti. I have no idea what's going on. It just started a few months ago. Okay, so he had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So we know that a sickle is a harvesting tool, right? Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one on the cloud that looks like the Son of Man, swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the whole earth was harvested. Okay. Uh, I think it, yeah, it was Jesus said that the end of the age is the harvest or the harvest is the end of the age. Okay. What age? The age of grace. We're about to go into a whole new age. God is tying up loose ends, so to speak. Now we are at the seventh trumpet, as I've stated, the last trumpet. We're reading the interlude or the behind the scenes showing us what's going on before the bowls of wrath are poured out, okay? We have a woman and the dragon where the nation of Israel remnant are protected from the dragon in the wilderness, so he targets her offspring. We say that, the offspring's us. 
We have the dragon thrown down to the earth. He takes his stand by the sea from which come two beasts, a coalition of nations uh, out of the sea. A small horn comes, seduces three, becomes dominant world power, headed up by the Antichrist and the beast of the earth, who is the son of perdition, requiring all inhabitants to take his mark as a sign of loyalty to the beast empowered by the dragon. The beast wages war against God's people, persecuting them relentlessly. We have the final push by the 144,000 Jewish believers, the angels, three of them announcing the good news, Babylon's fall, warning people don't take the mark. So all this is harvest-related harbinger. We're at the very end. Now we have the first harvest of the earth, which is at the second coming, 100% of the Lord, okay? And his harvest of us catching away. All right, so I want to prove it to you. And, and don't freak out. I mean, I've had people get so mad at me. And it's like, wow, you know, if you get angry at a fellow believer for disagreeing with you on the timing of the rapture, you got more problems than I do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I will listen. You got other things. You got questions. Let's discuss it. I don't need to get angry. I'm not here to prove uh, anything. We're just here to study the word. And it requires humility. Uh, so in Acts 1... Chapter set or verse seven, they wanted to know when, you know, is it time for you to set up your kingdom in Israel? He said, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times and they're not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now listen to this. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. Now listen to this. But he someday will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. The only place in the New Testament where we have Jesus returning on a cloud is right here in Revelation 14. This is the catching away. This is the second coming of the Lord. Okay? He's harvesting his people out of the earth. Okay? So this is the only place. You will not find it anywhere else. I've searched. Now, if you do, let me know. So... He's taken up in a cloud. They watch and they're like, hey, he's going to come back the same way. Now, in Matthew, which we've, we've discussed this a little bit, but in Matthew chapter 14 or 24, I want you to see something here. We're looking at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, or immediately after the anguish of those days, okay, so Immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sun sign that the Son of Man is coming, Perusia, will appear in the, in the heavens, and there will de be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And get this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, okay? So we got the Acts thing. They see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. We have them witnessing him actually coming back on the clouds. 
And then it says, and he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet. Which trumpet? The last trumpet. And they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. And heaven. So you got those that have died. They'll be harvested out of heaven. You've got those that are alive and remain will be harvested out of the earth. He joins this event with his second coming. He puts the timing immediately after the tribulation, which by the way, it is tribulation. It's the ellipsis. That's the word that's used for tribulation. The sign, I believe, is actually him on the clouds. But could the sign be the 144,000? Maybe. Could be. Don't know. And they're going to mourn when they see him because everything that was said was true, right? And they're going to mourn because they're the ones that crucified him. Like the nation of Israel is going to mourn because they're like, wow, it was true. So we are harvested out of earth and heaven. All right. Now, back at Revelation chapter 14, we're going to finish up with this in a passage in Isaiah. And thanks for sticking with me because we're almost done. So you have as harvested out, now the wrath has come. Okay? After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he had a sharp sickle. So the first angel was saying, hey, go do the harvest, right, to the one on the clouds. This angel comes out, he's got a sharp sickle as well. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung the sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great wine press of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled on in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. So when he returns and collects us, the Lord is immediately going to take care of business on earth. There is no us hanging out in heaven waiting for him at you know, the end of tribulation. We're actually joining him in this process. Um, I mean, 180 miles long of blood that goes up to a horse's bridle. Okay, so this event is actually alluded to in Isaiah chapter 63. And we're going to start with verse 1. Well, if I could get there. Okay, so verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom, from the city of Basra, with his clothing stained red? Who is this in royal robes, marching in his great strength? It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, who has the power to save. Why are your clothes so red, as if you've been treading out grapes? I have been treading the wine press alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. In my fury, I have trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. For the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger 
and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. Basra is 100 miles away from Jerusalem. Okay? So, like I said, we're at the last trumpet. That's when all of this stuff starts happening. Now, to look ahead briefly, because we're done as far as the teaching. So, if you look ahead, we've got the angel that announced the fall of Babylon, right? Um, right after the harvest of us, and then we've got the wrath that's about to show up. The song of Moses and the Lamb is saying, uh, is sung in verse or in Revelation chapter fifteen. That's interesting because I have said since uh, the late nineteen nineties that the story of Moses and the Exodus and the Red Sea is a picture of the end of the age. And I find it extremely interesting that when we finally cross over, right? We now have our resurrected bodies. We're never going to be tempted to sin again, ever, ever, ever. We are in our resurrected bodies. We'll never die, etc. And we sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And who was Jesus talking to in his transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, who Malachi said, will return before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so did Jesus, right? And I, I think it's a company of people. I could be wrong. It could be just one person that has that same anointing like John the Baptist. But I think it's a company. Right after the song of the Lamb and Moses, because we've crossed over into the promised land, you have the seven bowls. If you look at the tone, I guess you would say, of the seals and the trumpets, you see there's a time for repentance. You see that God is warning people. He even gives them a preview of what hell is going to be like. Go back and listen to that, that one. Um, he's doing everything he can. But once the wrath is here, it's different. There is no repentance. There, there's no room. From this point on, he's going to kill his enemies. So then you have all of that going on. You've got great prostitutes showing up again in the story, the fall of Babylon, which by the way, the fall of Babylon was actually at the hands of the Antichrist. Very, very interesting. I, I'm excited to get to that one. And then of course, we have the song of victory in heaven, the white horse, etc., etc. So the wrath is precipitated by our catching away but it's a behind the scenes that's going to show, um, like, I, I mean, again, it's the interlude that's going to show some of the events that are going to occur as we continue going through the book. So, again, any thoughts, any questions you have, anything you're like, well, what about this verse? Doesn't it support this position, blah, blah? Absolutely. Uh, message me. Um, you know, if you want to get on camera, let me know. I can bring you on video. We can have a Q and A. Uh, I'm not, um, I don't hang tightly to things that require a wisdom and understanding that I, I feel I don't possess. Um, again, the 144,000, that's got me stumped. I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but I, we can look and see how certain things connect. You know, we're at the last trumpet. Bam, they're caught up, right? So, like, you can see how these things are uh, tied together. And there's specific timing that's given to us on when these events will occur. So, we just need to make sure that any doctrine we have where there is question as to timing and, and what things might look like, that we hang loosely to that. You know, there are absolutes. 
Jesus is God in the flesh. You must be born again to go to heaven. You must be spirit-filled to see the kingdom, right? To enter the kingdom. I mean, there are certain things that are absolutes. But on these things, there's still much question in some of them. And it's so symbolic, it can be kind of hard to know for sure. Okay, so I just wanted to leave you guys with that. Look forward to any questions. If you have any of those, DM me. And uh, uh, my sister's coming to visit next week, so I probably won't be able to do one um, next week, but I will be back the week after. All right, have a great night.